Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast, Uncovering COVID-19, Opportunities for Growth and Evolution, a facilitator's response. This is Rangane, and I have here with me Miss Barbara McKay. Say hi, Barb. Hi, Rangane. <laughs> <laughs> we are back doing our third episode of our real-time Rogue podcast, and so excited to have you all joining us. Um, so for those of you tuning in for the first time, our first episode, we briefly touched on a little bit about the why behind doing this podcast now. We are living through a pretty extraordinary moment in our global history, and we thought it was worth taking some time to slow down and not just think about what's happening, but some of the why behind it and notice what's going on around us. And then in our second episode, we took a little bit of a deeper dive into what it means to really be with this moment and acknowledging some of the, the larger sensations of grief and other feelings that have been coming up for folks in relationship to the situation around COVID-19. So today we are going to be talking about a couple of really deep, uh, also some deep questions related to a tool that we have both used before in our facilitation practices. And we think that this tool is um, certainly relevant to facilitators, but absolutely applicable to folks who are not within the facilitation realm, perhaps leaders, um, and really just anybody who's looking to kind of consider some deeper level questions around the situation. So the tool that we're using is called a strategic juncture analysis. And last time we talked a little bit about what it means to do an environmental scan, how to gather data about the different events in history that have led to the moment. And the strategic juncture analysis is really a great way to help a group really come to a sense of understanding what's happening, whether in their organization or just around them in general. And it serves to give, give us some fruit for thought around um, what is happening now and what needs to be considered from a different number of angles. And this tool comes out of Technology of Participation in the Institute of Cultural Affairs. There are about eight different questions that this tool calls for. And today we are going to be playing with two of them, but we will offer all eight of them at the end of the, at the end of our podcast and invite you to explore them. I just wanted to say also that I really like the phrase in the top trainers manual that Rangana and I, um, or participant manual that we have access to. And it, it says everybody, um, it gives everyone a chance to get inside what is actually, um, what the organization or the community in this case, the world is facing and ready to honestly deal with it. And that's what we'd like to do today, really try to be a bit more honest coming from our various perspectives, not just from one class, one race, one generational perspective, but looking at it, trying to really um, hone in on places where uh, many of us have not had or the need, have not had to or had the need to look at it. And we want to honestly look at some of those places that are not being looked at by the news and or are being looked at the news and we're rejoicing about it. So I'll just say that. It's honest. Thanks. Honesty today. Thank you so much for that, Barb. So what the first question in the strategic juncture analysis is actually what is the window of opportunity? And since we touched on that a bit in our first episode, we thought we would move right on to the second question, which we think is quite um, quite poignant at the moment. And that is what are the negative consequences of inaction right now? And Barb and I have been sitting with this question pretty deeply the last couple of weeks. 
And so I'm going to pose that question to, to her now. Mm. What are the negative consequences of inaction right now? I wish I didn't have to go first on this question, Megan. (laughs) (laughs) However, I will. I will. Um, So first of all, I want to just share that uh, I have been, I've lived in the U.S. for the last 18 years, but I spent the majority of my life um, in Canada and uh, I'm hearing a lot of U.S. news. So I apologize for the U.S. centric examples that I may share with you and, or the North American centric examples that I might share with you. And I also come at a moment in my life where I'm living a pretty nice middle-class white privileged life. And uh, that means that I have not had to feel the collective grief that we were talking about in our last podcast, but this week I am feeling it much more deeply and I'm not sure that maybe I've just I've actually had more time to sit and to pause and to really pay attention to my colleagues who are not uh, in the same do not have the same life experiences as me Uh, I've been able to hear the news more clearly and with my heart and I've also been reading and listening almost nonstop uh, a book about racialized trauma and its impact on um black, white, and police uh, people in the U.S. And that really brings the examples of the negative consequences of inaction is where we are, if we don't pay attention to what the data has been telling us. And the data has been telling us, for example, in the USA, that blacks are dying disproportionately as are Latinos from this COVID-19 virus. And for those of you who do not live in the U.S., it's, it's centuries of oppression, centuries of uh, brutality um, towards Blacks who were originally brought to this continent and many other continents, in fact, uh, where they were treated as slaves and they were, they, they were, their bodies were subjected to horrific things. And our thought was, as white people, that we could treat them that way simply because we considered ourselves superior, thus the term white supremacy, where our race, the white race, my race, was considered to be superior. And what's, what's causing me the negative consequence of inaction for me now is that if we do not pay attention to this data, we cannot write the system. We have ignored it for so long that African-Americans are just proportionately affected income-wise, health-wise, health disparities are huge, as are for many other immigrant populations, but the Blacks in particular, because of the centuries they have been subjugated to severe trauma to their bodies, to their minds, to their souls. Um, another example is that we have we scapegoat people. We scapegoated um, Jews for centuries, for thousands and thousands of years. And now the Asian, Asia, Asian population in, in North America, and I don't know how it is in the rest of the globe, but in North America, they are being also targeted with, since, <laughs> I can't even say the word, but sincere, serious distrust, um, blaming that they caused the virus, which is absolutely not true. In my mind, um, the, the virus could have started anywhere. And the fact that we have unfortunately had 
the Chinese people, the Asian people had to be subject to its first wave of, of dire consequence. And we've learned so much and they have shared a lot of information with us and we, we are continuing to learn from them. They are continuing to support us to get through it as this, as it came to other continents after, after the Asian continent. So I know I'm, <laughs> we wanted this podcast to be sort of hopeful and joyful for facilitators and facilitators to think that the negative consequence of not doing anything is that we will continue to blame the, the people that are convenient to blame in a, in a bad situation. We'll continue to ignore the disparities of income and health equality uh, in the African-American population in the U.S. and in Canada, et cetera. Um, we'll continue to not deal with the things that have been traditionally known as institutionalized oppression, whether it's racism or classism or homophobism, et cetera, et cetera, anti-Semitism. I could go on and on. But right now I'm feeling that grief um, that if we don't take some action right now, um, my friends, my colleagues, my family are suffering, suffering disproportionately. And I don't want that. Never wanted that. But now I really have to look at it. And therefore, I'll just end there. Um, could probably say more, but I'm not going to totally blow up on you in terms of my tears. <laughs> tears are welcome here anytime. They're an honest part of this experience. And and not just for the two of us having this conversation, but for all of those of you who are listening, who we know are feeling feeling this conversation beyond just the words, who are um, either facing some of these systemic barriers yourself or are deeply connected to loved ones and family and friends who are being subject to them every day beyond COVID-19, right? We know that COVID-19 yeah. is not the only experience of these, of these barriers. It's trauma upon trauma, and that's what makes it so hard. So I would only add, I think that that was a powerful account. Thank you so much, Barb, for your transparency and your tears. Both have a place here. Um, that the negative consequences of inaction is essentially enabling the status quo. Mm -hmm. And the status quo, we know, and if we haven't known, we are hopefully coming to a quick realization is not serving the whole. And this situation, when we think about kind of what's above it in terms of learning and opportunities for growth, which is part of why we are doing this podcast, is, is to be able to change what's not working, to change that which is only serving the few to that which is serving the whole. This is the only way we won't come through this. Hmm. Yeah, and that's, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's beautiful quote um, or phrase. <laughs> Can you say it again? <laughs> we must change that which has only served the few in, to becoming that which serves the whole. Mm. And part of the conversation that you're hearing is the other part of the conversation that you're, you haven't quite heard yet, but has been part of our conversation sort of behind the scenes has been the idea of what it means to think about the situation as we talked about earlier from all these different angles. And so one of the other angles, in addition to the above the situation and looking at the situation is starting looking at 
the upstream versus the downstream. So when we think about the downstream, we think about kind of what's our reaction to the situation. And that I think has been very obvious. We're seeing that happening on the ground every day, shelter in place, healthcare workers on the front lines, um, food, uh, folks who are serving food um, on the front lines. So we are seeing the reaction to this, but what we're not really talking about is the upstream. What's, what's the cause of this? And I think what Barb, you were sharing speaks really beautifully, beautifully to that because unless we change what's causing the situation, whatever we do in this moment will only be a temporary solution. The cause will not continue. The cause will continue to exist. And so when we talk about changing the status quo, we're talking about changing the system and the structures that cause the situation to begin with. Mm. Can I say something here? Absolutely. Well, I'm thinking again from our perspective as facilitators, process facilitators, where we bring people into a virtual room or a in-person room and we, we ask them questions like we're asking, we just ask what are the negative consequences of inaction. And you ask that of a group and you know that everyone in the room has a different life experience and a different organizational or team or community or world experience around a problem. And I think that um, it facilitators have this amazing ability to ask really deep questions and, and give people the space to hear each other for the first time, not to talk over each other. And when then there's um, something that someone says that could be misinterpreted by others or is not the other's experience. And, you know, this happened to me the other day where I was sharing something that I was really joyful about. And uh, it wasn't the experience of my, the person who I chaired it with and, uh, or several people. And I had to say, Oh, wait a minute. Oh, wow. That's a negative consequence of me. If I had just ignored that they had a different experience from me, that would be inaction on my part. And I think as facilitators, we have to also pay continually pay attention to what's arising in the room and saying, and not, floating over it. I know that's not the great word, the right word, but like dismissing it or burying it under the carpet, but, but literally opening it up and saying, Oh, wait a minute. I'm seeing some body language over here that suggests that there's people in the room that don't have the same perspective. Can we hear from you? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we've got to do in the midst of this COVID-19 virus. Some people I know right now keep preaching at me what they think their perspective is, and I just feel they're not listening at all. But as facilitators, and me as a facilitator, I can say, yes, I hear you say that, and I'd like to hear from someone else now. Thanks so much for that, kind of a long-winded way of trying to... Trying to bring in the facilitator perspective. <laughs> I love it. I think it's an, it's an excellent point and um, also so invitational in nature. And I think I would just take a moment to extend that invitation beyond our facilitator community whom we love and adore so much to those of you who maybe are outside of that community or perhaps outside of that that specific line of work to really think about what it means to open up that space for the spaces and places where you're finding yourself, whether in the boardroom or in the dining room, wherever you are with other people, what does it mean to create space for all the different perspectives to be able to be heard and honored and not, um, and not just heard to be agreed with, but to be, but to allow them to be exactly what they need to be and have the space that they deserve. Mm. Last week, we talked a little bit about what it means to be with this moment. And so I think part of what's coming up for me is thinking about what it means to be with perspectives outside of your own, 
and to not come from a place of needing to agree with them, but just seek to understand them. That will help make the shift in ways that we cannot yet imagine. Yeah. So Do you want me to ask the next question? Yes, please go ahead. <laughs> I want you to answer first. <laughs> <laughs> the tables have turned. Um, so in this particular strategic juncture analysis, there's a third question, which we are going to skip over because it's similar to our fourth, but I'll just tell you what it w- would have been if we had answered it. What could be affected or changed in a positive direction five to 20 years from now? And instead, we're going to ask um, the fourth question, which is, what future desired result or change in the current situation is going to require persistence and perseverance? And I think the answer is huge, but I'm going to throw it to Rangane. <laughs> <laughs> no rest for the weary over here. No, no. Well, I think the, the response that comes up for me initially is is just an extension of what we've been talking about, about the conversation and some of the points we've made. And um, I had said this to a couple of colleagues a few weeks ago um, in relationship to talking about policies, but really I think this thought that I had extends beyond policies and really stems to the system structures that we've been talking about needing change. What if we imagine living in a world in which the systems and structures were informed by people and not power. And what would that mean for how we each navigate our day every day? And I think that that's part of what the opportunity that we're being offered here is, and also part of what will require great persistence and incredible perseverance because we have been living within these structures and systems for most of us as long as we can ever remember. And so to imagine to reimagine an entire an entirely different setup is going to require persistence, perseverance, commitment to the whole, and a lot of creativity. And I feel we are completely capable of all of those things. Mm. Barbara, what would you add? Well, I, I've been thinking of a lot of ex- small examples of this recently, and, and a teacher of mine um, demonstrated that beautifully with a person who currently has a fairly low-income situation and couldn't join the Zoom meeting the way um, they wanted. And the teacher, uh, in front of the entire class, you know, over 30 people, said, uh, you're worth it, and just gave this person time to uh, rant and rave and swear and just get, you know, totally frustrated with trying to access a Zoom meeting with very little resource, like uh, an old phone, an old smartphone, but somebody had given that to that person. And I just was so blown away by, you matter, you're worth the time. You don't have this, our teacher didn't say it, but you know, like basically this person doesn't have the resource that most of us who entered the Zoom room did. We deserve to give them the time that they need to kind of try and figure this out and say, we'll wait for you. And and our teacher held up the class for probably 10, I mean, held up, that's my language, right? But took 10 or 15 minutes to help give this person attention while they were able. And finally they got, they got into the Zoom room and we had this person on the phone, et cetera, et cetera. So I just think um, the future desired result, that took persistence and perseverance and courage to hold up 30 people for one person. 
that that person had less resource than any of us and we needed to give them more attention. Um, it was such a good modeling. And the same thing I've found with, you know, trying to change the, the racial um, equity um, lens, so to speak, in my own facilitator organizations. I just had to persist and persist and persist and say, no, we need, this is what needs to happen in order for us to become more racially diverse, more generationally diverse. And I just keep pushing. And finally, I'm starting to see some movement on that. And I have to also say to myself, you know, you are persistent. You, you pretty much persevere where it looks like nobody's going to change. <laughs> um, and so I just want all of us as facilitators to be reminded that don't give up. Mm-hmm. You matter. You're worth it. The next person matters. They're worth it. You know, give the people who have less resource, less time, less visibility, give them all of the space they need to enter into this conversation the way and how they can and when they can don't give up on them. I think that's a beautiful note to actually bring our episode to a conclusion. And we have a very timely quote um, about hope that we would love to share with all of you. And Barb, we'll go ahead and read that out. Thanks, Rangane. So this came um, just in an invitation from the Oprah Chopra, Oprah, Oprah Chopra, <laughs> Deepak Chopra, Oprah meditation series. If you haven't done them, they're really great for this time as well, but uh, they don't give it the source, but it says um, the science of hope. The science of hope tells us that in times of struggle, hope buffers stress and influences our life trajectory. Hope is not only an emotion, but a powerful inner resource to harness strength, find connection, and create the future we want to live in. So even amongst our grief and collective grief, we ask you to still hold on to hope. And where people cannot hold on to hope, you hold on to hope for them. Mm-hmm. Don't lose hope. Not all of us can have be hopeful right now because of their circumstances. But those of us who can, don't shove it in others' faces. Just hold on to it lightly, knowing that we will persevere. We will change the world. Mm. Thanks, Barb. Thanks, Rangani. Till the next time, who knows what'll happen next time. <laughs> <laughs> we look forward to reconnecting with you all in, in the next week. All right. Bye bye. <laughs>